Okay, we're ready to go again. Uh, we have a couple things coming up. We have a quiz that was supposed to have been available through Sunday that is actually available online through today. And that's because I forgot to mention to you on Thursday that there was an issue with the system and they were doing a major upgrade to our banner system. So all the major computers were down. And if you've noticed, you can't get into my hack and I think you still can't. They're still working on getting that back up. So I didn't explain to you that there is another way to get to D2L. They finally put it up on the website yesterday. So if you actually go to hack.edu, it's there now that there's actually a link to ehack.hack.edu, which will always get you into D2L as well. So it, Unfortunately, it wasn't up there all weekend. I, I was wondering why they wouldn't put that up there. That should have been put up last week so people would have been able to access it. So it's actually there. And if you go into that link, it'll just take you. It won't log you in. You'll then have to log in to specifically D2L. So you'd log in here as normal, and then you can get in, still, still get in and take the quiz. My hack is supposed to be back up hopefully sometime today, but there's no, no certain date on it. So. I did send e an email to the Hawkmail accounts, but I know a lot of you don't check that all the time, so I went ahead and made the quiz is available through the end of the day today. So if you didn't get a chance to take it or tried to get in and couldn't get into the system, you, can't, you should be able to get into that now. Yeah? Yeah. HackWeb, anything that's linked to the main computer systems is, da is down, so you couldn't get into. I mean, luckily you weren't turning in article reviews, just tried to do article reviews this weekend because you couldn't get into the hack libraries. You could do them on campus, but you couldn't get into the Hack Library website if you tried to do that this weekend. So, but yeah, Hack Web will not be accessible right now, and my hack is not accessible. A lot of the major systems are, are still down with this upgrade that they're doing. So, and it's taking them longer. It was supposed to be back online by noon yesterday, and we're now 20. I'm putting 24 hours past that, and they're still trying to get some stuff straightened out. But you can get in there. You can go in here. You know. Yes. Right. Right. When is that due? That was due. I don't. I don't know if I have a copy of it with me. It was like towards the end of April, middle to end of April. The twenty eighth. I think it's. It should be on the paper. It was towards the end of towards the end of April. I tried to give myself at least a week so I had time before the end of classes and finals to look at them. But you can go in. If you go in here, you could actually get in and take, still take that quiz. So you have through the end of the day today, you'll still have a chance to get in there, get in there and get that. You might be able to get into my hack by that time. You may, you may not be able to, but you can go in through the direct link on, which is now again on the main, on the main homepage. So we have that come, that you can still finish. Homework five, which I handed out. Last week is due the end of this end of this week, so you have a little bit of time still on that. We're finishing some of that material, and quiz five I've just put up. I have it due the 26th right now. That may get extended slightly, just depending on how quick we get through the material. I haven't covered all of it yet. I'll get through easily half the material by then. I'm not sure if I'll get through enough of it. So that's still tentative, and then the exam. Third exam is scheduled for the 29th. I'm trying to keep it right there. I may have to adjust the materials or make other adjustments to that. And I'll let you know for sure on Thursday if we're going to have to change anything. But for right now, it'll be chapters 10, 11, and 12. And we've only finished one of those three right now. So we're, we're slightly behind, but not, do, not doing too, not too, not too horribly behind. We're only, one, we're only really one week behind what we should be doing. We're essentially one week exactly off. 
because we'll be starting chapter 11 today and we should be, should be starting chapter 12 based on our original syllabus. So questions on what's coming up, then there's a little bit of a lull there. There'll be another couple quizzes coming up in April and then the big things coming up towards the end, the observations project. I didn't put that in but I can write that in next time. Uh, solar observations, I'll collect the last set next week. So the end of, or sorry, the end, yeah, the end of the month, so the 30th, I'll take anything there. That'll be the last one I'll collect. So I won't collect the ones for April because you'll turn those in with your assignment. So I'm not going to ask you to turn those in first. If you ever have some you want me to look at before, you don't have to re restrain them to those specific dates. I'll be happy to you know, email them. I'll take a look at them and tell you what, how you're doing right at, this, right at this moment. And if you're taking one, if you're taking any now, of course today's not the day to take one. It doesn't look like very well. But this is the first day of spring. Yay, winter's over as of 1 o'clock this morning or something. It, the sun actually crossed the celestial equator. So if you're doing the observations and you made anything before and you went through the calculations, you should have found out that the sun had a negative declination. It was below the celestial equator up till now. Anything you make after this, again, you won't see it in just your shadows, but if you do the calculations on the sheets that I gave you, you'll actually find that now you should be getting a positive number at the very end if you go through all the calculations. Anything after today should be, should be positive. So. We're moving up and the sun is getting much higher and higher in the sky. So, questions, questions, before we go on to our picture, or video today actually. And let me see if I have, we have a video for, t or a video for today, it's actually talking about the evolution and the formation of the moon. So let me see if I can get that to start here. And I'm going to make sure that's muted. Okay. So it's actually a video that shows, so, yeah, not a live video unfortunately, a computer animation of how we think the moon may have not formed, not the moon formed itself. We think the moon formed by a large impact of something with the earth many billions of years ago, very early. But this would be what happened after. How did the moon get to be the surface features that we see? And this would be the first, the moon cooling off and we had a relatively nice smooth surface. There was a very large impact very, very early, very, very shortly after the sun, after the moon started to cool at very close to the south pole. And there's a very large, immense impact that's, da that's visible down there that's still visible today. Then after that, about four billion years ago, there was a period of very heavy bombardment in the solar system. So lots of large impacts. So not just little objects, not just things that are, you know, this big, little tiny asteroids, but you're talking things that were many kilometers across, smashing in to the moon. And what they formed was what we see today as the maria on the moon, the very smooth areas that you see, even when you look at the moon with the naked eye, you see these very smooth areas. And this is the moon right now. It's showing it molten where those large impacts occurred. There was volcanic activity and molten lava was able to flow up from, the, from below the surface of the moon and actually flood that. So these large impacts made large impact basins. Then they, got flo then they flooded and made them very, very smooth. That was still about three, four, we're still talking over three billion years ago. Since that time, there's still been some cratering as it's showing here. You still had some objects hitting the, hitting the moon much less, much smaller than the objects that were forming it, were hitting it three or four billion years ago. Most of those big objects are gone. We have a lot smaller ones now. But those actually sort of pocked up the moon and there are craters that exist now on the Maria. Not as many as you see in other areas, but you still do see some. 
And then finally at the end you would have gotten the last few craters would have formed the very young looking craters. Nice sharp craters with the nice big ray systems. And you'll see some shown in here with the picture, actual picture of the moon. Now if we can see some or how well you can see the rays. But some of these very young craters will have rays that still have not, where the material has not been worn off. There has not been enough weatherings on the moon. That would happen any place. It would happen on the Earth. You'd get that impact and throw material out and create the rays. Here on Earth, that all gets washed off. It's going to rain, right? It's going to rain today, tomorrow. It's going to rain and it washes that off really, really quickly. The moon doesn't have that kind of weathering, so it actually will last. Those rays can last for billions of years. It can take that long, time, long, long of a time for many, many little tiny meteorites to actually hit it to hit it and wear off and actually be the weathering surface, weather, weathering source for the surface of the moon. So, nice little video there actually showing, sort of show you how what we think the, not how the moon formed. There's another video you can see at some point that shows how the moon, how we think the moon formed by something smashing into the earth a little before this. Then that what was left over formed the moon and as that solidified, this is how we think the surface features have, have occurred. So. Little aside back into the planets there before we jump back to the jump jump way out into the universe into the stars for the rest of the day. Questions? Questions? No? No? Okay. All right, let's go on to chapter eleven, if I recall correctly, right? We pretty much finished up chapter ten. Uh, we'll start right there. Chapter 11. So we've gone through and we've talked about a lot of the properties of stars. Uh, spent a lot of time last time on the HR diagram. We went through the HR diagram, had your quiz on the HR diagram, so draw one. You're going to see starting about halfway through this chapter, you're going to start seeing HR diagrams all, on every other slide. So as we talk about how stars form, we're going to become, I'm going to constantly be referring to that HR diagram. So you're going to see it as we come through this chapter. About halfway, about halfway through, you'll start seeing pictures. And all through the entire next chapter, all through chapter 12, constantly we'll see being seen pictures of the HR diagram and placing where stars would be at different points in their lives. What we're going to start, and in fact, the chapters 11, 12, and 13 all kind of fit together in that we're talking about the life of a star. So chapter 11 is the birth of a star, how stars form. Chapter 12 is the death of a star. And chapter 13 talks about what's left over afterwards. You notice we skipped that big section of the life of the star. We really talked about that a little bit with the sun. There's not a lot to talk about with the stars. There's not much changes. They stay pretty much the same over many billions of years. But a star would start out with something like this. There's nebulae gas out in space, gas and dust out in space, and that would be the type of thing that eventually some of that would collapse, condense, and form a star. Now let me get my... So what we're going to look at today is talk about the different matter between the stars and then look at the star forming regions, the different types of nebulae that we can, we can see. The dark dust clouds are one example how a star actually like the sun forms. And you'll see that we do that in this chapter and the next chapter. We'll first talk about something like the sun just because it's the one star we, we see and we think we know a little bit more about. So we'll talk about how a star like the sun had formed. 
Plus, if you recall, it was kind of in the middle of the HR diagram. So if you look at the sun, you're getting an idea of generally what things are like. And then you can look at those cooler stars. What would happen to those? What would happen to a smaller star? What would happen to a bigger star way up here on the HR diagram? So we'll look at how those, how those would occur as well. And then we'll tie it all into star clusters. Star clusters are a very good way to study the evolution of a star because we can't we can't watch it. We can't just make a star and sit there and watch this star. Okay, what's going to happen to it? Because look at the sun. The sun is going to take five more, five billion more years to get to the next, to start going to the next stage. It takes a very long period of time. You no, know, much much longer than our lifetimes. Even the stars that go through their lives the quickest and form the quickest will do so still on many, many you know, human generations. You know, they're not going to happen in our lifetime or our children's or our grandchildren's. Or, you know, it's well beyond that. They're not going to change in that, time, in that time frame. But when we look at, so even, those, take, even those, those most massive stars can take a couple million years to go through their lives. So it's not something we're ever going to see. But by looking at star clusters, we can look at a whole bunch of stars that formed at the same time. And we can start to get an idea of how, what really happens, how the stars actually change over time. Where are they moving in the HR diagram? How do they move around in the HR diagram? But starting out, we're going to go back to the beginning here. Interstellar medium has two components. It's got gas. And it has dust. So we have gas and dust in the interstellar medium. Gas is gas particles, little atoms, very small molecules that are present in that, in the, that, in the universe. Mostly hydrogen. Almost all of the gas is hydrogen. And what isn't hydrogen is helium. And everything else is that last little fraction of a percent. You have about 99% of the gas in the universe right here. And then everything else, all the carbon, all the oxygen, all the water, some of the other things that we do talk about and that do exist out in space are much, much, very, very small percentages of what we actually see. So this is very, very small, small object. It's molecules. It could also be some molecules. The dust is slightly larger. So the dust is actually larger particles. So somewhat, so a sooty or smoky type stuff. Little clumps of particles. Not real big dust particles. They're not real giant, but they're, they're, they're bigger than just you know, a few atoms in size. Now the dust is important because the dust does a lot of things to us. If you recall when we talked about spectroscopy, when light passes through a gas, it would create an absorption spectrum. Remember we talked about that. We said that if you pass light through a gas, that it is going to absorb the very specific wavelengths depending on the hydrogen that's there. Hydrogen will absorb that red line, those blue lines, those violet lines. Those very specific lines. Helium has its own set of lines. If there's oxygen there, carbon, nitrogen, iron, whatever else might happen to be present in that cloud, you'd get an absorption spectrum as the light passes through it. But you'd still get most of the light coming straight through. So gas isn't going to block out a star. If you look at the image here, you see that there's a whole section here where there's no stars. 
Lots of stars over here, no stars right in the middle, more stars on the other side. So dust, this is not just due to gas. If it was just due to gas, you'd just see absorption of those specific wavelengths that this cloud was made up of. When dust is there, dust doesn't have that same property. Dust is very good at absorbing light. So it makes things look fainter than they otherwise would. It blocks out the light and makes them look fainter. If there's enough dust there, you can actually get an area here where it looks like there's no stars. There's stars there, they're just all hidden by the dust. And the dust also, not only does it absorb light, but it doesn't absorb it uniformly. It also does what we call reddens the light. Which means that it's absorbing the blue light a lot better than it's absorbing the red light. You can actually see that a little bit here. If you look around the edges, many of these stars very close to the edge tend to look, it looks like you have a lot of red and yellow stars right around the edge of that. They aren't any more red and yellow than there are typically stars out here. It's just you're looking at them through the edge of this dust. There's not enough dust to block them out completely, but there's enough dust that it will turn them a little redder than they otherwise would be. So the dust does two things. It absorbs the light, so it blocks it out completely. If you have enough dust, you're not even going to see that there are plenty of stars in there. We just can't see them. They're hidden. They're hidden because you have all this dust that you're trying to look through. You know, think of it as a real, you know, real foggy day, right? With a certain distance, you can't see anything through. The, you can't see anything through the fog. It's there, you just can't see it. And but around the edges, where there's not quite as much dust, it turns everything a little redder than it otherwise would be. So it does those those two th it does those two things. It'll absorb the light and it will redden the light. So here's an example. Now here's that same image, those same pictures on the right-hand side we looked at before. There's that same one we saw on the previous screen. No stars. Now if we look at it again, and if you notice our little things here, this shows the wavelength. This is visible light. There's nothing there. If we look at it in infrared light, all of a sudden all those stars appeared. They're still there, but remember the dust is much, much better at scattering blue light. So it absorbs the blue light, gets rid of it all, and you can't see anything, but it doesn't do as good in the red and it does even worse in the infrared. So if we look in the infrared, we can actually look into these dark clouds. So we can actually look in through this dark cloud if we look with an infrared telescope. And that's what the diagram here is showing. Here's what you'd expect to see. Here's what would be there without the cloud. Regular black body spectrum with absorption lines. Well, what happens down here when you look through the dust cloud is way out in the infrared, nothing happens. All that light comes straight through, goes right through the dust. You know, just like radio waves will penetrate right through the building and get to us here, whereas visible light, if we didn't have the windows, would not get to us. But as you get towards shorter and shorter wavelengths, it gets more and more. You can see how more and more of it gets absorbed as you get towards those shorter and shorter wavelengths. So the blue light disappears almost completely and you don't see anything. Very little in the yellows and the greens, you don't see much. And if you got in went out into the ultraviolet, it would be even worse. You'd see even less. But what it doesn't change is it doesn't change the position of the spectral lines. So it changes the overall intensity and the brightness. But even when you're looking at those stars on the edge, you could still see and find out the same spectral lines. So you could determine a spectral class 
the star might look a little bit redder, but the lines will still be the same. You're just changing the overall coloring and you're really, you're in reducing the intensity and you're reddening the intensity. But the overall effect, you're not going to change the type of star. So you're not going to confuse what type of star it is. But the dust clouds will really absorb that blue light, block out the blue light. And as you get towards longer wavelengths, so that means when we're looking for these young stars, we're looking for stars that are inside dust clouds. If we're trying to look at a star that not just where light is traveling through, but when a star is forming inside a dust cloud, we can't study it with visible light. It doesn't get out. It all gets blocked by that dust cloud. And if you think about that, when a star is forming, it's going to be a collapsing dust cloud. Dust and gas is all going to be collapsing to form this star. We can't see it visibly, not with visible light. There's too much material around it. It's like it's in a big cocoon. We can't see that material. When we look at it in the infrared or with radio wavelengths that are even longer, we can actually penetrate and study it. So in order to study some of these very young stars that are just in the process of forming, we can't do it with visible light, but we can with infrared and radio. So here's an example. Here's some, of, some regions of star formation in our galaxy. And a good point of the dust in our galaxy is that we don't, you can see some of it here. You can see some areas some really bright areas where there's lots of stars and you see other areas around where there's very few stars. That's showing the dust in our galaxy. There's a lot of dust in the plane of our galaxy. Our galaxy is very flattened like a little disk and a lot of dust in that. So when we try to look through all that dust, again it's like looking through that big fog. We can't see big parts of our galaxy are invisible to us in visible light. We can't see them just because there's too much dust in the way. The center of our galaxy is a good example. In the summertime, if you were to look south, you'd be looking at the direction of the center, center of our galaxy. Constellation of Sagittarius and Scorpius would be out there. Our direction of our center of our galaxy is in the, towards the constellation of Sagittarius. That is the brightest radio source in the sky. So if you turn a radio telescope there, it's amazingly bright. It's glowing. You never notice it, right? You don't notice a big glow visibly if you go look in the summer sky. You don't see this big glow out to the south, unless you happen to look north of the city and then you see the big glow of Harrisburg or something to the south, or you're south of the city and looking at York. You, know, you don't see that big glow there because there's so much dust that even though if there were no dust, the center of our galaxy would be among the brightest optically, be among the brightest optical objects in the sky. It would be incredibly bright, but there's so much dust there, so much dust in the middle, in the center of our galaxy, towards the center of our galaxy, that's all blocked out. Now what's being pointed out in this picture is a number of different regions of star formation. And we've lo we'll look at a number of them. There's a, a whole bunch of areas where stars are currently forming in our galaxy. Some of these, M16, M17, M20, M20, M8, those are called Messier objects. Uh, after Charles Messier, who cataloged a whole bunch of objects, a little over 100 objects. And what he was doing in the 1700s is he was looking for comets. So that's why these are all his catalog numbers, is these were fuzzy things in the sky that he noted that weren't comets. You know, he didn't care particularly about these. He was trying to find comets. That was one of the big things at the time. So what he did was he made this great catalog to catalog where all these fuzzy objects were. They looked fuzzy through a telescope. So in order to avoid astronomers being confused as they were looking for comets, they could go to his catalog and say, no, that's not a comet. That's, you know, that's Messier's 16th object or 17th object or 18th or 20th or 50th or 60th. 
So they could just catalog all of the fuzzy objects so he could sort of eliminate things that he knew weren't comets and he could concentrate on things that he didn't know about and actually look for comets. So that's sort of where, these, where this naming came from. And he cataloged about 100 and 109, 110 objects in the sky that looked like it could look like a little comet, a little fuzzy object through the small telescopes of the time. Now they wouldn't be confused today through the much larger telescopes, but we still use that, that naming for some of, the, some of the more prominent big objects in the sky. But if we look at some of these nebulae, they look nice and tiny there. These things are actually tremendous in size. When you look at how big they are, you know, we're talking thousands of parsecs away, that's within our galaxy. But how big they are, parsec if you recall is a little over three light years. So these are in size 20 light years, you know, 24 light years across, 18 light years across, 50 light years across. I mean, that's how big just across this cloud. So even though their densities are so tiny, and maybe 80 million particles every cubic meter, that sounds like a lot, but compared to the density, that's, that's, that would be a good vacuum on the Earth. You know, if you're getting it down to 80, par- 80 million particles, that's essentially a vacuum here. We have many, many times that number of particles in every cubic meter of our atmosphere. So very, very low density, but because they're so tremendous, we have a large amount of matter within there. So these different clouds just here that are star-forming regions can have, you know, 250 to between 250 and 2,500 solar masses, masses of the sun within them. So if these were to collapse, you could actually start to form, you know, a certain number of stars, much like the sun. You could form, you know, hundreds of stars like the sun, depending on how actually how big they are. Now the temperatures shown at the end of the table there are starting to get they're starting to get warm. We're going to go back and look at some. These are relatively um, hot star-forming regions where stars have formed, and this is some of the material that's either left over or still condensing into smaller stars. These are relatively hot. We're going to go and look at some of the earlier ones where it actually starts out at an incredibly tiny temperature. Those, if you look, are comparable to the surface of the sun. So those are relatively hot temperatures out in space. You know, 75, the sun was about 6,000 degrees, so these are actually a little bit hotter than the surface of the sun because we have formed some stars. These have actually had stars form, with, form within them. Okay, questions? What we say is a nebula is any fuzzy object in space that we see. So, sort of a fuzzy object. So, nebulae, there's a couple different types. There's dark nebulae. We've already looked at one of those. And a couple that are pictured here are emission nebulae. and reflection nebulae. So dark nebulae are just what they say, they're dark. That's what we looked at before. That's a big dark area in space. You actually see some in in these pictures as well. Or in this picture here, this is invisible light. And you see a reddish glow here, a bluish glow up here. Those are two different nebulae. And then the darker areas where they're dustier actually look as dark areas on that. They're areas where there is much more dust 
and where we, the material is, is blocking the light from behind it. So a dark nebula is essentially a big dust cloud. The other two types that we see here are emission nebulae, which is sort of this reddish glow that we see, and that is due to hydrogen emission. So an emission nebulae is actually due to hydrogen and it appears red. So it'll give a reddish glow because of the hydrogen emission. And if you remember when we looked at hydrogen lines, hydrogen gave a very prominent red line. So these emission nebulae are going to look red. The reflection nebulae are, look blue. Not because of what they're made up of. They're still made up of everything is primarily hydrogen. So a lot of hydrogen here glowing, being excited by some very hot stars that are causing it to glow in the red. And a reflection nebula, it's blue primarily because of dust. So it's actually a lot of dust present and the dust scatters that light towards us from these very hot stars. When these nebulae form, the first things to form are the hottest of the stars. The very hot, big stars are all very blue, so they emit a lot of blue light. Dust is very good at absorbing blue light, but it also scatters that blue light. So if you're looking at a very hot star that's sort of in the middle of this dust cloud, some of it's getting absorbed, some of it's getting scattered out to us, and it sort of makes the whole, the whole nebula glow blue by reflection. It's just reflecting the light. You can think of it as a lot of little mirrors scattering all that light out to us. If you were to look at it, it's similar, or sorry, similar to uh, what we see with the sky. The sky looks blue on a nice sunny day at least. The sky looks blue, not quite, not so much today. But it's the same kind of thing. Blue light from the sun is getting scattered through the atmosphere comes from all ends up coming around from all directions, makes the sky look blue. The same thing is happening here. You're scattering the blue light from these stars and causes that dust to kind of glow and reflect that blue light towards us. The emission nebula <coughs> looks red, and again, the coloring is a different reason because it's, re it's the emission of hydrogen. So it's exciting, a big hot star, lots of ultraviolet radiation, excites that hydrogen, causes it to glow. The visible light in that, in the hydrogen, is all red, primarily red. Now the image next to it, there's two images there. They're actually of the same thing. Can you tell they're the same, same object? Look, look, at the look at the dust, follow the dust in it. And can you see where the dust pattern is here? around and can you see the dust except that it's bright here instead of dark but that's actually a picture of the same nebula so the coloring is false colored image because this is actually taken in the infrared part of the spectrum and it's just going back to what I told you before when you're trying to look into these dust clouds you want to look in the infrared the infrared allows you to see into these and actually glows brightly here so we can if we look at this nebula in the infrared we can actually see the areas that are primarily dusty. They glow a little bit but a little bit brighter. And you also can see that there's some things going on up here in the infrared that don't have any, any component in the visible. So up here there's a very bright in the infrared but not, not so much over here in the visible. So there are some areas where there could be more dust, there could be something else, there could be another part of a nebula up there that we're not seeing that's not being excited by a star. In order to see either one of these two types of nebulae, a reflection nebula or an emission nebula, you need a very hot star. 
If you don't have a very hot star there, the gas is still there. But if it's not being excited and there's nothing to reflect, there's no light, bright hot light to be reflected, you're not going to see the nebula. So in many of these cases, there's one bright hot star there. And if that star were to disappear, the nebula turns off. It's still there. The gas didn't go anyplace. But you can't see it anymore. There's, you need that very hot star to be able to see that. OK. Back to my. So I think this is sort of what I just went through. Emission nebulae are going to glow red. That again, is that's that Balmer hydrogen line, that very bright red hydrogen line. When we looked at hydrogen, you had red, and then you had some blues, and you had some violets. And that was all that was well, you, all you could see in the visible part of the spectrum. And that's what causes these emission nebulae to glow red, is that emission of hydrogen. So hydrogen emission causes that nebula to glow in the red part of the spectrum. The dark nebulae are pretty much absorbing everything. So the dust lanes are actually, in this case, and if we go back to that previous slide, they're actually a part, oops, no, we want to go backwards, not forward yet. Determined to hit the wrong button. There we go. Previous. Previous. Okay. Those dust lanes, as you saw here, those are not, you know, you can have dust between, we talked about something, you can have a cloud in between us and the nebula. These are actually part of this nebula. So we can determine distances. We can say that these, with pretty good confidence, that these are actually part of this nebula. So this is actually thicker areas of dust within that nebula. So it's all one big object here. You could get the same, occur, the same type of thing could occur if you had a dust cloud in between you. You could have a star here and a dust cloud in between it. And as you're looking at the star through that dust cloud, it could absorb out the light. But that, that's not the case in this image. In what you're looking at here, it's all one nebula. So it's all one big thing that you're seeing, you're seeing in this case, not due to something in between. Now, showing the form, the next slide is going to show you the formation, sort of how you form each of these two, each of these different types of nebulae. I should have mentioned, I was going to mention one more. Actually, one more type of nebula that we're going to come back to later in a couple of chapters. But when they were first classified, there were also the spiral nebulae. So these were nebulae. And again, these were classified many many hundred, hundreds of years ago when we didn't really have a complete understanding of what these different types were. But there were emission nebulae that looked red, and there were nebulae that looked blue, and there were spiral nebulae that looked like little spirals in the sky. So you, know, you had something that looked like, you know, little nebulae that looked like that in the sky. We now know them as galaxies, so that's actually another galaxy. But that's something we've only figured out in the last 100, 150 years. You know, if you go back to the turn of the century and read an old astronomy book, it'll talk about spiral nebulae and you know what are they? Are they part of our galaxy? Are they another galaxy? That wasn't even known at the time. So even going back just that 100 years might be pushing it, but 100, 100, 150 years, we did not really understand that. So they were sort of classified in with all these other types of nebulae. We're now going to look at those separately. We've got whole chapters now that Look at spiral net. Let's look at the spiral nebulae and the different types of galaxies that we see. But they were another one that we did, that we did know of hundreds of years ago. So here's how the regular types of nebulae work. You look over here. You have this big dark dust cloud. So here's the dark cloud way out over here. All the all the material. Nothing's glowing in that. 
And what happens at the edge of it is stars begin to form. So you actually have some hot stars that have formed maybe at the very edge of this nebula. So stars have started to form and are emitting a lot of ultraviolet radiation. That ultraviolet radiation excites the hydrogen and causes it to glow in the red. So this would form, these hot stars would heat the gas around it and cause it to glow in the red, forming an emission nebula. So the cause of those very hot young stars, they're emitting all that very intense radiation, you know, much more ultraviolet than our sun even dreams of emitting. A lot of ultraviolet radiation heats up that portion, you know, some portion of that nebula around it. Not the entire nebula, the entire nebula may be way too big for those stars to actually excite. But they'll excite some component of it and we'll see that glow in the red. And that's what we saw in some of those previous pictures was where some hot stars were emitting all that ultraviolet, causing this to glow, excite that hydrogen, and causing it to give its visible red light off. Now what happens in some cases, you send some of that visible light out from the stars. The stars are sending visible light out, regular visible light out too. Here's just the red, this is the glow from the gas, but those stars are sending light out, which may strike a dust cloud either close or far away from it. Closer works usually a lot better, but some of that light, when visible light comes here, the blue light tends to get scattered all over the place, and the red light will go right through that dust cloud. So the redder light in the infrared sort of travels straight through and comes out over here. So it just goes straight through that, we don't see that. The blue light tends to get scattered and bounced around and come out every which direction. So if you were looking from over here, you'd see a reddened star because all the blue light's gone. The blue light's been scattered. Some of it's going this way to the observer here. Some of it's going to an observer in that direction. Some of it's going to an observer down here. But the whole cloud will glow in the blue. Red light went straight through it. The dust doesn't like the red light, it just travels right through it. Sort of like our atmosphere. When you look at the sun at sunset, it looks very red. The red light travels straight through all that atmosphere. There's, the sun is still, if you had no atmosphere, would still look exactly the same at sunset as it does during the middle of the day. It's just that you're looking through all that material. And this red light does, this light does, this cloud does the same thing. The visible light gets sort of broken up. Red light comes straight through it. Blue light scatters out in all directions, causing when we look at this, from any other angle to look a little blue. And that's what we saw as a reflection nebula. Now what you might see as a dark nebula are some dustier areas, some darker clumps within the nebula. So maybe these stars are exciting this big region, but there's some clumps that aren't being so excited. Maybe because they're a little bit denser. There's too much material there. These could be areas that where stars are currently are working on forming. So this could be a clump around, centering around a very young star starting to form. So they're collapsing to form a star, but they're denser and they're not excited by that ultraviolet radiation. They're too dense to be, to be excited in the same way. So depending on how you'd look then, if you looked at something like this, I'm going to go back a couple slides again. Depending on how you look at something, you could actually see all three different types of nebulae at once. And let's see, that was that one, yep. So you could actually see all three types of nebulae here. Very hot stars could be exciting this nebula, causing it to glow red in hydrogen. There could be some denser areas here that are blocking out all of the light. Maybe there's more stars that are in the process of forming in some of these or just denser clumps of gas and dust. And then some of that light from these stars is reflecting off a dustier area up here 
that has not been heated as much, so it's, it could be a cooler, dusty area, and then is reflecting the blue light to us. So we can see all three types of these nebulae at, at once, and all formed by the same type of thing, all same formed by those same stars. And again, once those stars are gone, there's no ultraviolet radiation to heat up this part, so that disappears. There's no blue light coming from those stars to illuminate this dust, so it disappears. And once those young stars are gone, the nebulae are actually gone. And they last a relatively short time astronomically. You know, millions of years, yes, but astronomically a relatively short amount of time. Okay. Now when we look at some of the nebulae, you get some interesting pictures, interesting pictures here. And the nebulae and the stars, the interaction between those two is everything that causes these, that causes the nebulae to form. So you get the very red areas. When you look and zoom in, so this is actually, the pictures are actually zooming in to a much smaller area. These you may have seen pictures before of the pillars of creation they're talked about. So big long pillars where stars are currently forming and stars have currently formed and then there are areas here where there is a denser, mater denser material. So the stars that have formed, these very young hot stars, are pushing material away from them. So they're very energetic, they're, they're trying to clean out the material. But there's some areas where it's denser, up in here, and it doesn't clear out as much. So the stars have pushed material away in some areas, you know, zoom, zoom, pushed all the material out of the way. Some areas are sort of holding back. And you may see something similar to that on Earth, you know, if you think of a, a flood. Right? Certain areas don't flood away quite as quickly. If you watch the water flood in a river, you know, some areas where there's a nice big rock there, well, material stays behind it, right? It doesn't get washed completely away. Well, some of this material is, holds, out, holds out. You've got essentially a big rock there. It might be a heavier dust cloud, and it's just heavier and harder to move. If you get a bigger enough dust cloud or a big enough, uh, big enough storm or enough time, eventually you can move that big rock and wash everything away. That'll happen over time here. Eventually, these will get fully dissolved and destroyed and will either form a star or they'll you know, fade, away, fade away, they'll get washed away. But sort of think of it like, like a flood. Eventually, the sun accepted starlight that is creating it, that is pushing material away. When there's only a few particles around, it's very easy for the stars to push them. As the clumps get denser and denser, it's much harder. And that's what you're seeing here. You're seeing a very dense clump and it's kind of shielding the material behind it. So keeping that from being pushed away. And what's dissolving, you see that fuzziness at the edge, kind of at the edges of them. You don't have to worry about the specific term. I'm not testing you on the photoevaporation term. It essentially means that the starlight is causing it to evaporate, is evaporating the gas and dust is tearing it apart. So it's slowly causing this to dissolve. Again, slowly on astronomy, so slowly astronomically, real slow for us, we're not going to see it happen. But over many astronomical timescales, over millions, hundreds of thousands and millions of years, it's slowly dissolving those pillars. The intense radiation is just slowly pushing them back and back. Again, we won't see it in our lifetime or in our children's or grand, you know, but when you come back in a million years, they'd look completely different. New stars will have formed, much of this would have been pushed away. Now emission nebulae, again we talked about emission nebulae before, we talked about primarily the hydrogen lines and you get the very bright line of hydrogen here, that's a lot of what we see and you can see how bright and intense it is, there's that one hydrogen line 
And there is some other stuff there. In fact, you can see neon and helium and oxygen that are also a part of this nebula, but they're dominated by this red light. But if we were to take a spectrum of that, and there's an example shown, so if we put our spectroscope, we looked at spectra a couple chapters ago, and we were to take it, we could actually determine what this cloud is made up of by looking at the various lines that occur. Yes, we know we're going to see hydrogen and helium. What else are we going to see? Are we going to see neon? Are we going to see oxygen, carbon, iron? You can find all those things in these nebulae. When you calculate them, you're going to find out that most of it is hydrogen and helium. But sometimes, because we know it's all going to be hydrogen and helium, the more interesting things are the other little bits that are there. You know, it's interesting to know, oh, well, what is the concentration? Is there more or less oxygen? Is there more or less carbon? Is there more or less neon? That might tell us more about the nebula than knowing that, okay, it's 90% hydrogen and 10% helium, just like everything else, just like the stars, just like Jupiter. You know, everything else in the universe is the same. Sometimes it's the little details that are actually more interesting because, you know, we talk about the composition of Jupiter, we talk about the composition of a star, the composition of a gas, it's always 90% hydrogen, 10% helium. It's always the same. So sometimes it's those details that astronomers want to look at and see, you know, what are, you know, what stars have, you know, have an unusual abundance of oxygen. Doesn't mean they're made up of oxygen, they're still made up of hydrogen and helium. But there are stars and nebulae that have an ab extra abundance, you know, have twice as much oxygen as another. And that may be something interesting to be able to study. But any of the emission nebulae we look at, are we're going to get those emission lines. So we can study what they're made up of. Now when we go into the dark dust clouds, go back to those, and see the images down here. Here's a nice dark dust cloud. You don't see, you don't see much, right? The only reason you see the dark dust cloud is because it's blocking out the stars from beyond it. Image on the right is the same cloud. Except now it's really, really bright. And if you look at the bottom now, we've gone to even larger wavelengths. This is visible. So here you are looking at visible light. Here you are looking in radio light. So in terms of radio, there's a lot of emission here. There's a lot going on way down in here where there's nothing going on in the visible part of the spectrum. It's all blocked out. But we can look in and see that dust and gas even in that area where it's all absorbed. There also very cold. When we look at these dark dust clouds, there isn't a lot of material there. There's a lot of material, sorry, there is a lot of material there, but it's all very cold. And if you remember, it took something like the sun is 6,000 degrees. It took 6,000 degrees to heat up the sun to cause it to glow visible light. 3,000 degrees glows red or almost infrared. And if you get much colder than that, we're talking only 10 degrees, 20 degrees, 30 degrees they're not going to glow in the visible part of the spectrum. They're not emitting any visible light. They're much too cold. They're going to be emitting primarily, they're going to peak way out in the radio part of the spectrum. So they're going to be much brighter in the radio than anything else, any, than any other part of it. So you're not going to see them in gamma rays, x-rays, ultraviolet visible. It's all, going to be, it's all going to be dark there. But when you look at it in the radio, it's actually going to glow and you can map out where the intensity, where the dust is. So we can look into what could be these stellar nurseries where stars are forming with radio, and then somewhat later, as it warms up a little bit more, with infrared light. So we can actually look at those. But again, the clouds will absorb the visible light. They absorb all the visible light coming to them. That's what you're seeing here in the uh, left-hand uh, left side. All the visible light has pretty much been absorbed. You might have a couple stars that may be closer and in front of the clouds. You might have a couple that are in front of the cloud. 
that you see through it. And then they re-emit it, but they're such a cold temperature that they don't emit visible light. They don't emit infrared. They don't emit ultraviolet. They don't emit x-rays. They don't emit gamma rays. They're so cold that all they emit is radio. And so we can study them in the radio portion of the spectrum. So here's again another, another nebula. We're looking at a couple of the different nebulae again here. But this is shown, again, the dust clouds. We have a reflection nebula, so bright blue star reflecting the blue light. You have very hot star, very big bright reddish star here. And you might have some, also you got some reddish glow here, so you may have some emission nebula, but you can see the reflection nebula around the, you can see the reflection nebula, the very blue around some of these very bright stars. Antares is a bright star in the summer, summer sky, and is actually a very relatively big, hot red star, real, real super, what a still super giant star, very, very, very big. So one that's reaching, not forming, one that's reaching more the end of its life. And this one should be, that's a globular cluster. We'll come back to those in a couple of chapters. As pointed out there, it happens to be in that direction, but globular clusters are actually clusters of many millions of stars. We'll come back to those in, a, in another, not this chapter, in a couple chapters we'll talk about, we'll talk about those again. And there's supposed to be two images on there, and I only have one, so sorry about that. <laughs> so I'm supposed to be comparing it. That's only the visible image, not the infrared image. There's another one where it would show the infrared, where again, you'd see into the dust clouds. So certain things in the infrared would not be visible, you'd be able to see into the dust clouds. Horsehead Nebula. Another bright, another prominent dark nebula in Orion. So Horsehead Nebula, you see how it got its name? One of those few things you can see that it looks like a little chess piece, right? Got the little horsey head there and then the body, so it looks almost like a knight in chess. Um, very distinctive one, just one of the more prominent ones towards the constellation of Orion. And a very prominent, again, but it's a dark nebula. It's blocking out material that has, you can't see through it, you can't see behind it. If we could look at it in the infrared, in the radio, we could actually look into this nebula and see, you know, whether there was, is this an area where stars are currently forming. That's something we could actually learn by looking deeper, deeper into this nebula. That's just one example of a sort of a prominent one that is a very distinctive dark nebula. It just has a very distinctive shape that happens to have occurred for it. Okay, now. Here, before we get into star formation, I'm going to talk to you about this a little bit. In order to see that gas, and we looked at that radio emission, this, we talked about emission between, as electrons jumped between energy levels. Remember, we had a base level and you had higher levels, and when the electrons jumped between them, they could emit or absorb radiation. And that's where we saw that red line of hydrogen. Well, in the radio part of the spectrum, a very prominent line has nothing to do with jumping energy levels like that. It has to do with the spins of the proton and the electron. It's much too cold. When we look at these very dark clouds, you remember the sun wasn't really hot, was hot enough to excite hydrogen, but not efficiently. It took a much a little bit hotter star to really efficiently excite hydrogen. So when you get this one, when you get to a really, really cold cloud, it just doesn't have enough energy. It's not going to excite the hydrogen, cause it to glow in the red part of the, to the red as it would normally. But there's another thing that occurs with hydrogen, and you can have either the proton and the electron spinning in the same direction, or you can have them spinning in opposite directions. 
Well, the proton wants to spin in opposite directions. That's the lowest possible energy the electron, the electron and proton can have. They're actually spinning oppositely. So one spinning counterclockwise, one spinning clockwise. That would be the lowest energy. Sometimes you can have them spinning in the same direction. That requires a little bit more energy. When you go from one transition to another, so when you transition here and the spin of the electron flips, so it flips from spinning counterclockwise to spinning clockwise, it gives off a little bit of energy. It gives off a photon. That photon is not red, not blue, not green, not in the visible part of the spectrum. It's a very tiny amount of energy that is emitted. It's a very low energy photon and it actually has a wavelength of about 21 centimeters. So about like that, wavelength. So about 21 centimeters in wavelength. So it's a very long radio wavelength photon. Very easy to observe. This happens a lot in those dark dust clouds. It doesn't take a lot of temperature. Does not, you don't require a very high temperature to emit those very long wavelengths. To bounce these hydrogen atoms into each other, if you, they strike each other, they can give each other a little bit of energy and cause the electrons to flip and have, end up having parallel spins. They don't like being there. They still want to be in the lowest energy even though there's not a big difference. And they're going to jump back down and give off that 21 centimeter. We can observe that very easily even in the coldest to darkest dust clouds. It doesn't take a lot of energy to give us this transition. This is our way of looking into those very dark dust clouds. Because hydrogen has these two different states, parallel or anti-parallel, opposite spins, we can then look into those dark dust clouds and determine what's going, we can map out where the hydrogen is in those clouds. If we can determine where the hydrogen is, then we know where everything is, right? Because 90% of it's hydrogen. So it's pretty, if it's uniform, then there's hydrogen and helium. We can still map out where most of the material in the cloud is. This is how we go about studying those type of objects, so those type of dark clouds. So here's an example where you might look at one. And we're looking at molecules. This is actually isn't hydrogen. This is looking at H2CO. So it's a molecule with the hydrogen, two hydrogen atoms, a carbon, and an oxygen. But if you look, here's that glowing part of the nebula, right? It looks kind of familiar. We've looked at this one before. There's the red glow of hydrogen. And you can look at where all the material is visibly, right? It's all, you know, centers around here someplace, right? Most of the material looks like it's up there. When we map it and we look at the intensity of the molecular emission, so either due to hydrogen or due to some of these other molecules, we find out that they peak way off over here. So again, the visible light and the actual material may not correspond. There might be a lot of material that's, vis that's actually outside what we can see, outside of the part we actually see visibly. This is just where the, this part of the nebula in the visible is just where the gas has been excited by the hydrogen. By the, by the, by the, sorry, the hydrogen gas has been excited by the hot star. It doesn't mean that there's not a lot more gas and dust hidden down here that we really can't see, at least in the visible. Again, we can see it in, in the radio. When we map it out in the radio, we find the peaks down here instead of up here. So that means there's probably a lot more material down here than there is up here overall. And there may be, you may be looking at just the very edge of a much denser cloud. And that tells us again where the material is in, the, in that cloud. Again, we use other molecules. Hydrogen is a big one that we use. Carbon dioxide is one that's used. Carbon monoxide. 
are very common molecules out in space. Water, water is very prominent out in space. There's a lot of water molecules. You know, all it is is a couple hydrogens and oxygen, so it's very, very simple molecules to form. But we find all of those out in some of these molecular clouds out in space. We find all of these. And we can use them to map out again. If we look at the radio emissions, we can find out where they, where the material is actually located. So, again, a hundred years ago, before we had radio telescopes, all we could do was look at the things that emitted visible light. We didn't know about any of the rest of this until we had radio telescopes and other wavelengths to be able to study these. So here's an example of carbon monoxide. So this is actually a radio image of the sky. And you're looking in towards the Milky in, in the direction of the Milky Way, but you can see areas where there's a lot of emission, so a lot of carbon monoxide. And you know, here's some intense areas, here's some, here's some real bright areas that have a lot of carbon monoxide. And again, everything's pretty much mixed up pretty well in space. So if you have a lot of carbon monoxide, you probably have even more hydrogen and even more helium still associated with that. So it's not just a big clump of carbon monoxide, but it's everything. That's just showing you where the matter is. You're just choosing which, which molecule to look at. And carbon monoxide happens to be a very good one that emits a lot of radio wavelengths that are easy to detect. And then we can observe that. So these are probably regions of star formation. These are regions where we're looking at areas where stars are forming. They wouldn't look prominent in the visible portion of the spectrum. They'd only be visible in the radio because they're so cold. And we're going to look at that here in just, in just a minute. But we can look at this again for a number of different regions and see you know, where is the intensity? Where is all of the matter? It might not be visible to us. You know, we, see, we look out and we see the stars. We see galaxies. That's where the matter is really concentrated. But there's a lot more matter out there that isn't concentrated quite enough or at quite a high enough temperature for us to be able to see. Okay, so to form a star like the sun. Well, we started out, you have some part of the dust clouds. We've been looking at these dust clouds you know, all, cl all class today. And for some reason, it decides it wants to contract. So it says, oh, today I'm going to contract and form a star, right? Well, there has to be some, some reason that causes that. And that's a good question, you know, what causes it to collapse? Uh, a couple different things can happen. Normally a gas cloud that's out there isn't going to just collapse on its own. It requires some sort of input, you know, it's following Newton's laws. It doesn't want to change. It's, you know, going to, it's going to stay there until something happens to it. So there's some external force. Sometimes these, there's big gas clouds. Remember I told you they were parsecs across, so they're like the distances between stars. Well, a star could pass close to one. Two clouds could pass close to each other or through each other and collide. And that could start star formation, start them contracting. Um, you could have a star explode nearby, a supernova. We'll get to those in a couple of chapters, but a supernova is an exploding star. It tears itself apart, but it sends a big shock wave out into space. Well, if that hits a dust cloud, it's going to compress one part of it. And once you start the dust cloud collapsing, then it wants to keep collapsing. Once you start it going, then, it, then the process takes over, then the gravity takes over. So once you get enough material starting to condense at the center, then it gravitationally pulls more material in and it just becomes you know, a nice feedback effect. It keeps going. So more material, the more material you have, the more you're going to get and it's going to start forming stars. So it will become hotter and hotter. So this is sort of the big chunk of the rest of the chapter on one slide. Starts to collapse for some reason. Again, I gave you a couple examples. 
As it collapses, it gets hotter and hotter and hotter until it reaches the key temperature, about 10 million degrees in the core. And that is the temperature that is needed for nuclear fusion to occur. In order for nuclear fusion, so fusion of hydrogen into helium requires about 10 million degrees. Our sun's about 15 million degrees, so we got plenty, plenty of temperature to be able to fuse hydrogen to helium. But once it gets to 10 million, that's when this object that has been collapsing actually becomes a star. But something happened. Something had to happen to start it. It didn't just, you know, okay, the gas cloud out there didn't just say today, I'm going to go ahead and collapse today. I'm going to go ahead and form a star today. Something hit it. Something causes it to start collapse. It might have been other stars forming and their intense radiation that could have started to collapse it and started to push it and get some areas where the material clumped up a little bit more and then started star formation. And again, once it becomes a star, then, then we're done. So our chap, this chapter, the rest of this chapter is looking at this process. How do we go from that very early dust cloud into forming a star? And then the next chapter will take, okay, we've got a star. What happens when it's no longer able to produce nuclear fusion? What happens when it's no longer to produce any energy in its core? So when those stars start to form, and most of what we have, if we look at individual atoms, and if you recall, there are forces between atoms. We talked about some of these earlier. There's an electromagnetic force that wants to push you know, charged particles apart. There's always a gravitational force between every two objects in the universe. So they are pulling on each other. So you know, these two are pulling on each other, pulling together. These two are pulling together. But the gravitational force between any two little molecules is so tiny that it doesn't really matter. Yes, there is a gravitational force. But if they're moving and this one's moving pretty fast this way and this one's moving pretty fast this way, you know, even though they're pulling on each other gravitationally, they're going to pass right by each other. So you might go from a state like this to a state where they're close together to again, they're just going to separate apart again. They're not actually going to stick together. There's too much random, we call random motion among them. They have a certain amount of energy and you need a stronger gravitational force. You need to get big enough clumps that the gravitational force will then be able to overcome this random motion of the particles. Because each particle in a gas is just moving you know, every which way. Particles in this room, or some are moving this way, some are moving that way. Every which way, just depending on the temperature of the room. Even though these are cool clouds and they're moving a lot slower, it's still much too fast for just individual atoms are never going to be able to pull each other together gravitationally. We need something stronger. We need something to collapse them together and not just get you know, dozens or even thousands or millions of atoms to get together. You need many, many billions of billions of billions of billions of atoms to get together. To get, you have to really compress it down in order to start this collapse. So you're not just going to start it by, you know, they're going to come close together and you might get, you know, you might get, even if you consider each of these to be a million atoms, five million atoms close together. That's nothing. That's hardly anything. The gravitational force is still nothing on the others. They're moving too fast and they're just going to separate. We need something to really compress big chunks of matter together in order to get a star to start forming. So here's the stages and these are all numbered in your book. The first seven stages are the process of this, or the topic of the rest of this chapter. And there's a table here that just goes through starting with an interstellar cloud. That's what we've kind of been talking about. Those interstellar clouds out in space where maybe stars would be forming. There's 
very cold, 10 degrees. So not very hot, 10 degrees Kelvin. That's not 10 degrees Fahrenheit or 10 degrees Celsius or anything like that. Now 10 degrees is 10 degrees above absolute zero. So that's on the Kelvin scale, which means as cold as you can possibly get is zero. Space itself is about three degrees. Just if you measure the temperature, the background temperature of space is about three degrees. So you're essentially almost as cold as you can possibly get here. And you don't need to know these exact numbers. I like you to look at how the numbers are changing, the general trends of them. I'm not testing you on, okay, stage three, what's the central temperature? That's not going to be a question. You know, stage, but I want you to see how are things changing. So as you go from stage one to stage seven, which is where we want to get, that's a star, that's a main sequence star. So that's where the sun is right now. We go through these stages. So the cloud fragments. We start to form what we call a protostar, not quite a star. Then the star forms. We actually hit 10 million degrees. Star can, that star now can produce energy, produce its own energy. And finally, it settles and becomes a main sequence star. So as it goes through these stages, what I'm looking for is more what's happening to the diameter. Well, it's getting much, much smaller by many large, by, by factors of you know, 100 million, almost. From where it started, this big, giant cloud collapsed down by a factor, you know, from that size, by a factor of about a, almost 100 million there. The density went up by an even larger factor. Again, the exact numbers aren't what are, what's important. I'm looking for you to see that the densities have increased. You've gotten more and more particles have compressed to the center. The temperatures, this is the central, this is the surface temperature, have gotten hotter. And again, we're looking at a star like the sun, so it ends up about 6,000 degrees. So surface temperature gets up to about 6,000 degrees, central temperature up to about 15 million. Again, they increased. I'm not going to test you, you know, stage five, what's the surface temperature? No. That's not, so you can go look that up if you need to. That's not something you need to, you need to be able to memorize. The other thing to look at here is the times. And again, you don't need to know the specific ones, but stage seven lasts about 10 billion years. Look at how long these other ones last. 30 million years, a mil, uh, 10 million, a million, 100,000, 30,000, 2 million. They're much, much less. You, know, you can add all of these up, and you still don't even come close to the lifetime of the sun. So stars tend to stay as a main sequence, for, a main sequence star for the great majority of their life. The rest of this astronomically goes very quickly. It might take you, what? 30 million, 40 million, eh, 50 million years. What's 50 million out of 10 billion? You know, it's nothing. It took hardly any time to form this star relative to the total age that the sun will live. And then it will sit here for 10 billion years. And then next chapter, we look at the stages, you know, 8 through 14 or whatever it comes out to be. And we'll see the same thing. You'll see that this is the longest stage, and then all the rest of them are very, very short. That's why most stars that we see in the sky are main sequence stars, because that's where they spend all their time. You might happen to catch a star that's forming, but you're just happening to catch it in this very small percentage of its, of its life. So we're going to go through the stages now. We'll get started on this today and then finish this up on Thursday. But as I said, the first step, the first stage is you had that interstellar stellar cloud. It starts to contract, and again, something had to happen to do it. Could have been a shock wave, could have been two clouds colliding into each other. 
Could have been a supernova explosion, some kind of shockwave into it. Could have been just the energy from a very hot star that formed that just pushed part of it back and started this whole material collapsing. And what happens is as it collapses, it breaks apart. So it gets in, it starts to condense. This whole thing doesn't condense down to one star. It would actually slowly break apart and you'd get denser clumps within the clumps. And you can see here you start with some denser areas. You know, here's a few denser areas. Those start to separate within those. Then areas start to separate again. And you start to get denser areas within each of those clouds. And eventually you'd form, no, we're not to stars yet. We're still in the very early stages. But you'd have these very dense, much denser clumps of gas. So compared to this very large, diffuse clump of gas that started the collapse, you have a whole bunch of these nice little ones that will eventually form into the cores of a star and into a solar system. So you start with one big gas cloud. Something causes it to start contracting. And as it does, it slowly fragments and breaks into littler pieces. Now they all are relatively close together. When we're looking at this, you know, you're looking at it up close here, it looks like they're separating apart. When you look at it from Earth, that's still one of those big nebulae. So one of those nebulae is forming a whole bunch of stars at once. And then as you go through it, they're going to continue to collapse. So these clouds will continue to collapse and then will eventually go to the stage of creating a, they'll form a star. So each of these little tiny fragments would eventually form a star. When you look at stage two, within those little fragments, they begin to collapse. You reach a point where they don't start to frag, they don't, they don't keep breaking apart. It's when they're very diffuse, they break apart very easily as they're moving around, so you start to form lots of little clumps. Once that they get dense enough inside, the gravity starts to take over and hold them together. So they don't break apart. So once you're getting, again, we're still in the very, very early stages. You've broken them apart. Once you get down to a clump that's going to eventually become a star, either a solar mass like the sun or a couple solar masses if it's bigger or a smaller fraction, once that density is enough, the star doesn't start to break apart again. Once you get some sort of gravitational stability, it's not trying to tear itself apart anymore. And then what happens, stage three, we start to heat, we're starting to heat up. Now the heating has been occurring all along. Stage one, as it started to collapse, it was heating. Remember, it started out about 10 degrees. And it's reaching up to 100 to 1,000 degrees during stages two. And then stage three, it's going to continue to heat. It's still incredibly cold for the center of a star. 10,000 degrees is nothing. Hot for the surface of a star, that's a nice hot star. But if you're looking at the center of the star, that's not enough to do any kind of nuclear reactions. So the interior continues to heat. Throughout this, the stages, as we looked at on that previous table, the temperatures go from very, very cold up to much hotter and then slowly increase their temperatures. They increase towards much hotter temperatures. So you've gone from tens of degrees to hundreds of degrees. We're up to thousands of degrees. We have to keep that going up to millions of degrees. We've got to hit not only 10,000, but we've got to get 1,000 times hotter than that in order for the nuclear reactions to begin. So that's up through stage three. Come on. And an example here is the Orion Nebula. So you may have heard of this one. It's a nice nebula in the constellation of Orion and shows you how to find it here. If you look out and see Orion, you've got Betelgeuse, the bright star up in the upper left, Rigel in the lower right, and the belt of Orion, Orion's sword. That middle star in the sword is actually not a star, but is actually the Orion Nebula. 
So if you actually zoom in and take a telescope or a pair of binoculars to that, you'll see that it's not a star, it's a little fuzzy object. And it actually looks something like this, but as you zoom in more and more, you start to see these are all, well this is infrared, but this is a visible picture of it. You start to see all the gas and dust and you start to look at some of these very young stars that are just in the process of forming. Here looking in the radio, especially part of the spectrum where we can see deep down into some of these little clumps and we can see some of these large clumps. Again, they're not stars yet, they're not even protostars yet, we haven't even quite gotten to that stage, but they're very large clumps of material that are, star that are going to eventually form stars. Yeah, sure. Um, can't we observe this then? I mean, I know we can't observe the whole process, mm -hmm. but if we break it down into, you know, condensing over the course of like 50 years, maybe? We can observe, we have to observe it separately. You can't, you can't we, can, we can sit there and watch these stars, but they're not going to do much in 50 years. They're not going to change enough in 50 years. That's too short. But I mean, in the process of condensing, though, like you have to be able to. But even that takes millions of years. That condensing, those stages that we're talking about, remember, they take tens of millions to tens of millions of years to go from stage one to stage two. Doesn't happen in 50 years. It happens in, you know, 10 million years. So there's I don't no way in our lifetime that we no. can observe a rate of condensing. No. There's only one part of stellar evolution that we can actually observe in our lifetime, and that's at the very ending stage. There is one, when a star explodes, it goes to a very, very rapid explosion. That we can actually see you know, on a time scale that you know, we can understand. Anything else is much too, much too long. But we can see all the different stages, so we can look at you know, a stage here, we can look and we can see stars that are in the process of collapsing, and we can look at other areas that might be a little further along. So you can see the different stages, but you can't follow one. What you'd really love to do is follow that one and watch it. Oh, here's a star forming. I want to watch it collapse, and I want to see it you know, become a star. We can't. It's just too long. So at the end of the day, this is just still a theory. Yes. It's our, it's our theory based on the best models that fit what we see for other different things. So based on our study of how the stars will form and our understanding of it, you know, I can't sit there and watch one star form. You know? If we could watch it over, if we, live, if we had lifespans of hundreds of millions of years, we could do it. We could actually watch a star form. But we can't. So, let me see what's next. And then I'm going to come back to this one next time. But this is just sort of the protostar stage. As it collapses down, once we've gotten to that point where it started to condense, it's now what we call a protostar and it's something we can actually see. So you can actually see it sort of as a star. If you look at, we said the HR diagram was going to appear. We're going to look at that a lot again on Thursday. It starts way up off over here. So it's a very big, very cool star. But it's not really a star star yet. It's not producing any kind of energy yet. It's still collapsing. The only energy it has is because it's slowly gravitationally collapsing and it's releasing what we call gravitational energy. That's where we'll come back and start on Thursday and then we'll take it through the last couple of stages and then finish up this chapter and then jump into the other, jump into the other end of the star's life. So we'll finish up the birth and go on to the death of the stars. So questions? Questions. All right. Have a good afternoon and I'll see you on Thursday.